0: It's always good to start with a story, so I'll tell you the story of how I went on my first uh, mindfulness retreat. It wasn't really my first long retreat. My first experience with mindfulness as a retreat practice was at a, uh, a weekend retreat in San Jose in a private house that had been used for the uh, to become a retreat center in uh, the spring of 1977 and my husband who had previously gone away on a several week retreat and come back and said so this is great you should do it uh because i'm a pretty congenial person and it was in those days his way to go off and try things and come home and say this he would come home and say this is it you should do it and i did a lot of things that were it before it was it actually but so sometimes i tell the story in terms of my spiritual path but skipping that part, he came home from the mindfulness retreat and he said, so this is it, you should do it. And so I went to a three-day weekend at um, a private house in uh, San Jose, California, and it was terrible. It was just so hard. First of all, I did not understand the instructions at all. I really didn't have a good idea about what I was doing. I was very uncomfortable. It was hot. It was very crowded. We had... uh, only two bedrooms that we slept in, men and women in both bedrooms, on, on mattresses next to each other, getting dressed and undressed. And It was not a scene that I was used to. And, I, you know, I was old at the time. Given the scene, I was old. I was 40 years old, and I felt myself to be old um, now 40 seems very young to me, but I felt, myself to be, I felt myself to be old. I was uncomfortable. No one told me there would not be caffeine there, no coffee. And I had a terrible headache, and uh, I was miserable the entire weekend. And I was mostly rehearsing the speeches that I was going to make on Sunday when my husband came to pick me up to tell him what nonsense it all was, how mad I was about going there. The complete total loss, how could he have put me there? I, you know, I couldn't leave because I didn't have a car. Uh, he dropped me off and he came back on Sunday. But somehow or another, two months later, I was on a plane flying up to Toledo, Washington, to go on a 14-day retreat. So when uh, people say, how come if you had such a terrible time? Uh, you went on a 14-day retreat, and how come you made this your life's practice? And uh, I, I like to imagine it was two things. One, I only have a clue. You see, I have a, a photo of uh, the the graduates of that retreat, the people who made it through to the end, sitting. You know how you take a class picture at the end? There were probably 20 of us in this picture, maybe 15, 20 people. And I am in the front row on the edge, And for whatever reason, I was smiling. So I think to myself, maybe actually there was some glimmer of appreciation of the potential of this path that made me happy. Maybe I actually got it about the possibility of the mind being liberated or happiness being a possibility. And just when I left, because there were so many uncomfortable moments, the uncomfortableness colored my mind, and I couldn't remember the rest of it. Maybe. Maybe. The other thing is that I did my walking meditation in the living room of this particular house. And in the living room, there was a a fireplace. And over the fireplace, there was a mantle. And on the mantle, there was one of those little uh, polished uh, uh, redwood burls that you buy in a a store in a um, national park. They usually say sisters are friends forever or there's no place like home or something like that. And this one said, life is so difficult, how can we be anything but kind? And I did my walking meditation back and forth in front of that mantelpiece and I looked at that Redwood Burl that said, life is so difficult, how can you be anything but kind? And I thought to myself, if that's what they teach here and that's what you get to be, I don't know, but my guess is that that spoke to me and said, you want to do this, so. So here I am, 37 years later, 31 years later. 30, 30, 30 last summer. <laughs> I remember celebrating my 30th birthday. It was July 7th, 1977. So I think when we talked, we've talked a lot in these talks uh, about meta and mindfulness. Really, making them separate is really to make an a uh separation just for the purposes, I think, of practice. We do different techniques, but really, I think the point of both practices is to arrive at wisdom because it's really wisdom that protects equanimity, and it's equanimity that manifests itself in kindness, in all the permutations in, of kindness, as goodwill, as friendliness, as compassion, and as uh, appreciation or empathic joy, I actually think of the—I I think of those four Brahma Viharas, equanimity, metta, upaga, mettā, karuna, and um, mudita—as really um, very much inter- integral to each other, and really in my mind's eye. How I envision it is that equanimity is the foundation of them all. I know that there are various ways to say this. How it works for me is to think about how it is for me that when my mind is balanced, which is really what equanimity means, and we've said that in the talks each night, it doesn't, Donald particularly said last night, it doesn't mean tranquility, it doesn't mean calm, it means the mind that is large enough to hold everything in it and still have the space to say, this is what's happening. What's the appropriate response? I think it was Mark the other night who said that both uh, mindfulness practice and loving-kindness practice led to the appropriate response that seemed like such a good thing to say. That we're not doing it to be doing it. We're not doing it to be good meditators. We're doing it to be able to make the appropriate response. Because in life, We are called upon to respond all the time. Life is continually challenging, and the degree of suffering, the 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 degree to which we create suffering in our minds and in the world, depends on the quality of our response. When my mind is clear, my response is generally non-contentious, and in fact, one or another permutation of compassion. Sometimes it's friendliness, sometimes it's appreciation. So I don't really, I I really have, uh, over the years, uh, less and less been able to tease both practices apart, partly because, both because they go to the same place of wisdom, I think, but also because I can't imagine practicing mindfulness without a warm, kind heart. Really, to meet each moment of my experience clearly with a balanced mind, to know what's there, to not flinch, to be able to stay there for it, requires that my mind be forgiving, that it not meet that moment with contention, that it not be uh, in a struggle with it. Okay, this is here. Okay, this is here. This is pleasant. This is not so pleasant, but it's what here. what's here. I need to have a warm uh, appreciation in order to stay present. In the same way, or in the converse way, I can't imagine practicing loving kindness without mindfulness. I need to know what arises for me. What's my experience when I make this resolve for myself or for somebody else? First of all, I have to know. I have, I have to be present and, and noticing what's happening in order to even know if i'm doing it if i if i'm if i am in fact making these intentions and what are the feelings when i make these resolves and what are the different feelings when i make the resolves towards this person or this person or this person sometimes i think that i'm in for a surprise when i when i begin to do some serious practice and i think to myself well i'm not in any problem with anybody and then i start to go through my rolodex of the heart and find that there's a different feeling that comes up with, okay, this one, and this one, and this one, this one, ah, not so sure. Say, so, oh, I didn't know that was there. So as I think of my mind as kind of being like a sieve that you do, you pick up a whole sieve full of sand on the beach and you shake it, and then you see which big shells and lumps and hard pebbles are left. Come for my for, to do uh, loving kindness practice. I see what lumps are left in my heart that have not been integrated into it fully enough to be open to all of the people in my life or in the world or all the things that confront me in my life. So I don't really see them ever as different. I see them as integral to each other all the time and both of them leading to wisdom and in fact sustaining wisdom that attention sustains wisdom and kindness sustains wisdom. Everything depends on wisdom. The wisdom to know that karma is true, that things happen because other things happen in a huge, so myriad causality way that is one of what the Buddha called the six imponderables. Who can know? the zillions and zillions of of events that have gone into the fact that you and I are in this room at the same time on this night, that we lived this long, that we got here, that we're here and able to understand this, that we have the opportunity to do this. Who knows, going all the way back forever and ever in time. I like to think about uh, the, the far edges. When people talk about karma, they talk about proximal karma and distal karma. I like to think, uh, I'll, I'll, pick up, I'll pick out some fantasied idea like Marco Polo is part of my karma. Well, how? Because if Marco Polo had not done open trade routes to the Orient, the the, the, uh, the mercantile climate of Europe would not have changed and the economic situation in Europe would not have changed and the political situation in Europe would not have changed in such a way as to have caused my particular four grandparents to emigrate to the United States at such a time that they could each meet each other and like each other well enough to have produced offspring who produced me, ultimately. So Marco Polo is part of my distal (laughs) karma. But everything is part of everyone's distal karma. Marco Polo is also part of your karma. And when I know that, I'm able to know that things happen because they happen. And I have very little actual control, I don't want to say everything is out of my control, what I eat for dinner or what I eat for a snack before I go to bed tonight very much depends on if I'm still alive when it's snack time and if there's something to have for a snack. But when I get to that point, I can have A or B. I get to have little bits of choices, but I'm not so sure about free will. That's a whole other talk, though. This morning, I... uh, I was returning to the retreat center this morning in my car from being away overnight. And I was, um, I talked to a friend of mine on the telephone as I was riding, uh, who lives up in Sonoma. And she said, it's pouring up here. And I said, well, here it's just extremely foggy. It's really hard to see. There was very thick fog uh, driving it over White Hill this morning. And she said, drive very carefully. Take very good care of yourself. So I was very touched because I know that she loves me a lot. And we got off the phone and just then uh, I uh, turned on the radio to hear the weather forecast to hear if it would be raining later on. And those of you who know here, live here know that you get traffic and weather together on KCBS every 10 minutes as you drive. So I push the button that turns on KCBS, and uh, they say we're now switching to uh, Sky 2 over San Jose, where there's been a fatal accident uh, just north of the turnoff to um, whatever road it was, and now we're going to the helicopter, and the helicopter uh, reporter said, yes, there's been an accident, Uh, there's an overturned car and one fatality, and uh, So there are three lanes blocked. So it would be a very good idea if you're going southbound to take... uh, And then he went on to give alternative routes that people might take so that they would not get stuck in the traffic. And I had such a feeling... I've had it often when I hear that. Not every single time, but often. When I hear just that report on the traffic and weather together, somebody just died on that highway. And I wish it can't happen you know but i wish that the traffic reporter could take a breath in between saying in order to make have an easier commute you could take this alternative route and say maybe we could all you know just for a minute think about the family of this person who's not coming home tonight or the person who's not coming home tonight they can't do it they can't do it it's a you know it's not the way that radio works and besides, if they did it, we'd have to be doing that all the time and we'd have nothing but quiet on the radio. <laughs> because not only did people die in traffic accidents this morning, but in wars and in famines all over the world. We'd be speechless, actually, if we did that. But I was, for a moment, caught in that, in that awareness that we never really know. I think that's such a key piece of the wisdom that keeps my heart dedicated to wanting to be free of enmity. I've, I'm so clear that I have a certain amount of days. I hope it's a lot of days. And I don't think it, I actually don't think now that I am older, more about that I have less days, it's true on any day at any age. Because I don't know how old that person in that car near San Jose was this morning. We don't, any of us. No. Maybe I'll take a breath and read from one of my favorite dharma teachers, Billy Collins, who poet laureate. It is possible to be struck by a meteor or a single-engine plane while reading in a chair at home. Safes drop from rooftops and flatten the odd pedestrian Mostly within the panels of the comics, but still, we know it is possible, as well as the flash of summer lightning, the thermos toppling over, spilling out on the grass. And we know the message can be delivered from within. The heart, no Valentine, decides to quit after lunch, the power is shut off like a switch, or a tiny dark ship is unmoored into the flow of the body's rivers, the brain, a monastery defenseless on the shore this is what I think about when I shovel compost into a wheelbarrow and when I fill the long flower boxes and press into rows the limp roots of red impatience the instant hand of death always ready to burst forth from the sleeve of his voluminous cloak then the soil is full of marvels bits of leaf like flakes off a fresco Red-brown pine needles, a beetle quick to burrow back under the loam. Then the wheelbarrow is a wilder blue, the clouds a brighter white, and all I hear is the rasp of the steel edge against the round stone, the small plants singing with lifted faces, and the click of the sundial as one hour sweeps into the next. A very short and precious life. You never know. I wanted to tell some stories about my friend Tamara. My friend Tamara died on uh, December fifth, so it's about a month. She died of ovarian cancer. About. Um, Three years ago, just not so long after she'd had the diagnosis of cancer, uh, I found a message on my answering machine on a Friday afternoon. Um, And it went like this. It said, uh, hello, Sylvia, this is Tamara. I'm just calling to tell you that you don't have to worry about me. And I was momentarily very excited because Tamara had been... uh, diagnosed tentatively with ovarian cancer 3 weeks previously she'd had symptoms they had done surgery they'd removed everything that needed to be removed the initial pathology had come back as a as a, uh benign a week later with further pathological pathology tests it had come back as not benign and in fact malignant. And now she was calling me perhaps a week later that from that, and she said, I'm just calling and leaving this I'm just calling you, Sylvia, to tell you that you don't have to worry about me. And I thought, Praise be, they've done some more pathology, and it turns out that it really is benign. The message went on after you don't have to worry about me. She said, even though Hurricane Francis is coming directly towards where I live in Florida, said you don't have to worry about me because I have some friends who live further inland away from the shore in a house with less glass less windows than I have so they're coming to get me and I'm going to spend the next several days with them and I won't be back until after the storm passes so don't call me I won't be home and don't worry about me I'll call you when I get home so that was the beginning of the story was also very compelling for me. That entire weekend of Hurricane Francis, I became a devotee of the Weather Channel. I watched the Weather Channel all day for the whole of that storm as the hurricane was coming. And I realized how, because I had someone dear to me in the path of that storm, the storm had become very important to me. I I, I watched... uh, uh the, the weather forecasters on, on uh, uh, the Weather Channel, who stand out in all kinds of terrible weather and wind and blowing, and to report, I think to myself, you can go inside and give the report. You don't have to stand outside. It's more dramatic. I watched all weekend as they gave the reports, and then the, the storm passed. At one point, there was a young woman out in the rain reporting, and some tiles flew off the roof, and she had to duck out and then stand up again and continue the report. <laughs> I was thinking about where is her mother, and I wonder if her mother is watching (laughs) on television. But really, the reason I'm telling you this is I want to really make the point now and as we continue along that human beings are empathic animals. I don't know if sheep are moved by the plight of other sheep or cows. Maybe they are. But we are moved by the plight of other people. It's in the nature of human beings to be empathic. And because life is so very difficult, I think if we let our empathy teach us, we will become kind-er. So I watched all weekend and then the storm was over and then Tamara called after the weekend and reported it to me and she said, you know, uh, we sat together as in the, our pajamas all huddled together in the living room she said the uh, the uh, eye wall of the storm came through in the middle of the night, and all of the power power was out, and we all sat together, huddled in the living room on the sofa and We mostly sat quietly, but she said, when the storm went through, it sounds like a freight train, it's so noisy. she said, and when we were the most frightened, we made prayers for the people around us, people outside, the people in the storm, the people around us in Florida." And she said, uh, making those prayers for other people made us feel better. I thought that was so crucial for me to hear that, that in the middle of one's own discomfort and fear, linking oneself to other people, facing the same kinds of difficulty, shares the difficulty, doesn't actually take anybody more or less out of jeopardy but it has a sense of a shared experience we're not so dreadfully alone I said to her after she told me that I told her about uh, that when I'd had the phone call I thought that maybe she actually didn't have cancer and she said no no I have cancer she said but during the weekend she said I didn't think about it She said, it wasn't what was happening. She said, and besides cancer or no cancer, we were all the same imperiled. I thought about that story and I envision it in my mind. I see these folks huddled together, keeping themselves calm and steady in the midst of this storm and not being afraid because they were sending good wishes to everybody outside in the storm. And it seems to me a cognate image to the image of the Buddha sitting under the tree in Bodh Gaya on the night of his enlightenment. Many of you know the story of his decision to renounce his family and go off and try to discover for himself the cause and the end of suffering. So leaving be- behind that story, to the very, the very crux of the story, his arrival after his man- six years of practice at very, very serious concentration uh, techniques, during which time he had really, really refined his ability to concentrate. He comes to Bodh Gaya, sits down under a tree, and says, I'm going to stay here until my mind is completely clear and I fully understand the cause and the end of suffering. And it is said in the legends that the forces of Mara, which I understand to be the forces of all the things that upset our mind, that catch our ego, and may have a pull on all of our ego-driven impulses, the forces of lust, the forces of desire, the forces of anger, the forces of fighting back, Contention, all those forces that can be aroused if our minds are not settled and clear and absolutely um, set in the understanding that to fight with what's uh, to fight with what's happening confuses the mind that the mind then becomes confused and here is the Buddha sitting under the tree, has one hand in his lap, and another hand on the touching the earth. And the very famous uh, uh, script that goes with it is that is him saying to the forces of Mara, who in the illustrations of this scene, which are marvelous, especially for children's coloring books, here comes Mara on horses throwing spears and arrows and all the kinds of things that can hurt that arouse fear that might arouse fear and retaliation and here comes mara in all kinds of uh disguises that are sensual and that might erotically lure the buddha out of his steady clarity they are all impinging on the space where the buddha is sitting and the buddha is sitting in the midst of this one hand touching the earth and presumably saying to in response to it I see your armies, Mara, and I am not afraid. I love that line. I see your armies, Mara, and I am not afraid. In another in another rendition of what he said, it says he put his hand on the ground and said, "I have a right to be here." I love that line. I think that it I understand it with me as meaning I have a right to be here. You have a right to be here. We each of us have a right to dwell with clarity in the midst of a world that will be for each of us challenging sooner or later in big or small ways in the in the commentary on that particular uh, experience of the Buddha sitting and uh, being assailed by the forces of Mara in the pictures of it, you see that none of the spears and the arrows and other kinds of uh, difficulties thrown at the Buddha can get anywhere near him. It's as if he is surrounded by a halo. And uh, the commentary said that the force of his goodwill, the force of his benevolence is so great that when any of these beguiling or upsetting influences came near to him, they were transformed into flowers and fell on the ground all around him. I love that. I think it would be great to think that I could so move through my life, so living in the uh, solidity, in the composure of my own benevolence, that my mind would never become confused, and I would always remember what's true, that I would always remember that things happen because other things happen. To contend and to struggle with what I cannot change is the cause of suffering, is suffering, that everything has a beginning and has an end, including me, including everyone that I care about and love, that things arise and pass away, that I'm not alone, that really I am part of the great, extraordinary experience of creation itself and human beings as part of creation, coming and going, each of us temporarily manifesting as this or that particular physical form. If I could remember that, then my mind would see this great and amazing story instead of the small and frightening story of my own particular life. And I actually think that it is loving-kindness practice, particularly as we direct our loving-kindness to others, that lifts us out of our small and particular story. I was teaching about um, the second noble truth, the cause of suffering is craving, the other morning uh, down at the lower hall on Wednesday morning. And I was talking particularly about the tendency of uh, the mind to become uh, and, and beguiled by lust, or enraged by something that frightens us and, uh, and how hard it is to keep the mind clear enough and composed enough <clears throat> to recognize that when things happen that we like or we don't like in a way that will arouse us to behave in a way that will cause pain for ourselves or other people, that we don't have to do that. That if we had clarity, we, that this is what's happening. There's nothing I can do about it. That we can move through even difficult situations. People share their lives in, in that Wednesday morning class in ways that sometimes startle me. They, uh, I told a story. I told a story about um, a new book that's been pub- just recently published by Annie Dillard. It's a book called The Matries. And it's a story, Maitrey is the name of the heroine. No, it's actually, it's the name, it's a, Lou Maitrey is the name of the heroine. Her name has become Lou Maitrey because she's married Mr. Maitre. But the story is about Lou, who is virtuous, it lives in Provincetown, a uh, hundred years ago maybe. Uh, no, it has to be 50 years ago because there's an automobile in it, that, or somewhere in the last century. Lumetri, who is amazingly virtuous, she has decided—this is a very brief summary, because it, you need to know this to understand this person's response—says that Lumetri decided long ago that she did not want, like her mother, to uh, fill her mind with grievances and carry them along a the whole life. Lumetri's father had apparently left, deserted the mother. And so she decided that her mind would not get caught in grievances. And she understood that so clearly that she didn't allow it to be. So that when the first boy that she fell in love with uh, left her, the book is funny, for glockenspiel playing twins, she was able to say, well, I wish them well because I like him. He's a very nice person. And I like the twins as well, so may they all be well. So that's where it starts. You understand what kind of a person she is. She then marries Mr. Maitrie, and they apparently live for some 15 years. And I tell this story. I was actually read quite a bit of the story to the class the other day. I'll tell you a little bit. They lived together 15 years when he, at which time he decides that he has fallen in love with their best friend and now plans to leave her and go off and live with the best friend. And he decides to tell her that just as they're in the ambulance having rushed to the scene of where their son was run over uh, on his bicycle by a motorist. son is alive. They, they've been called. And they get into the ambulance and um, uh, Lou Matry says, thinking about the man who couldn't stop his car in time, poor man, he must feel so... Terrible," she says. "Imagine what you must think when you've r- realized you've run over a small child because you couldn't stop in time, and he couldn't stop in time." She says, "Poor man, poor, all of us, poor everybody." It's a great line, I think. In the book, Mister Maytree, at that point I can't remember his name, decides if she could do that, I can tell her I'm running off with a friend. <laughs> At that moment. So he picks that moment to tell her. And you know, you read this and you think, wow, this is worse upon worse. And it gets worse. And he goes off and he's ultimately unhappy. But now he feels at this point he can't go back. And his new person takes ill and he's having to take care of her. And he falls down doing that and hurts himself. And the book ends with the both of them coming back and to Lou Maitrey and saying, we need you to take care of us. And she said, well, yes, of course. I've cared so much about both of you in my life. You were my best friend. You were my husband for all those years, of course. So the reviewer at the end of the book, actually, the other woman dies, and they resume their great love affair. But the reviewer at the end, <laughs> see, you all laugh, and everybody on Wednesday laughed, and the reviewer at the end said, this is problematic. You know, <laughs> you know that, uh, you know, didn't, didn't exactly say that, but sort of made the case that it was problematic. Uh, but, no, this is, the, this is not the end of the story. But because two people in that group of, I don't know, 80 people said, you know, I did that. They said, then everybody in the group said, no, who would do that? And two people in the group said, I did that. Yeah. <laughs> Mark says no way. Most of us think no way. Give me a break, you know. That I don't. You know, I, I do have to wish ill, but you know. But, but the idea that a person could do that, and these people said both of them. They said I, You know, not the first second that I applauded, but they said I realized that if I had any leftover residual grudge, that I would suffer from it. And that, uh, uh, one, one person said, that our children would suffer from it. And that keeping a grudge, that I, what I had to say to myself is, and this is the wisdom all the time in any situation that's difficult. The wisdom, that it, the, the wisdom is, this is how things are. It couldn't be otherwise. What can I do now that's an appropriate response that will not cause suffering for me or anybody else? My friend uh, Martha, who died um, two years ago, next month, said um, about, uh, of pancreas cancer, said, um, she said, sometimes I think to myself, why me? She said, and when I do, I suffer a lot. And she said, I suffer when I think that, why me? It's not fair, it's not fair. My brother just died, I just finished nursing him, I could have a little life, now why me? She said, I suffer when I think that. She said, and then all of a sudden, I'll go along thinking that, thinking that, suffering, suffering, and all of a sudden, I'll think to myself, why not me? Pancreas cancer is one of the things that people get in the world. Not happy about it, but why not me? She said, when I think, why not me? I stop suffering. The the fundamental knowledge is things happen. This is the realm of 10,000 joys and 10,000 woes, the Buddha said. And we are all heir to all of them. Everything happens to everybody, really. Uh, One of the things that we do on Wednesday, and I honestly think this is the most best spiritual practice for any of us. We sit for 40 minutes or so beforehand. I teach for an hour or so after that. The five minutes that we spend doing out loud mentioning of people for whom we are thinking warm and caring thoughts are for me maybe the most important learning every week. We sit quietly. We've been sitting for 30, 35 minutes. And I'll say, let's mention, if you want, people whom you'd like us to think about with warm thoughts. And I keep my eyes closed, so I don't know who is saying what. And I'm thinking myself, I often will say, my friend so and so, who has this and that. And somebody over there will say, I'm thinking about my brother, who after 10 years of sobriety, my brother Tim, who after 10 years of sobriety has um, had a lapse. And someone else over there will say, I'm thinking about my mother who um, is uh, really struggling with her. heart failure and weaker and weaker every day and I'm struggling with my son and I'm thinking about my 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 cousin and they're not all difficult stories. Every once in a while someone will say I'm thinking about my daughter who has just been discovered is pregnant with twins and uh, really would like some good thoughts for her. And you can feel the whole room go, ah, ha, ha, you know, the, like in the world of 10,000 woes and 10,000 joys, being pregnant with twins, presumably if you wanted to be pregnant, is a, is a great double joy. And I sit there and I have the, the, the absolute sense that my head is getting screwed on straight again, that I, if, my, if my head is in its right place, I remember that this is a very difficult life for everyone as well as for me, sooner or later, maybe not every day, and certainly the Buddha did not mean to imply that every moment of life is painful. There are plenty of joys in the world, and everything is ephemeral and nothing lasts, and everyone is all the time needing to accommodate change and loss and often grief. there's a way in which I think when we sit in those five minutes and listen to each other from here, 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 here sometimes someone someone last week said so and so who has breast cancer and I recognized the voice and I recognized the name it's not a usual name and I didn't know about it and I thought oh. yeah, I felt that in my mind and I realized that when we know somebody we really we really feel the the importance of what is dear to us. And it so clearly makes the point for me when the Buddha says, just as a mother would give her life to save her one and only child, just so should we towards all beings, boundlessly open our hearts. I don't think it's about a mother with a child. I think it's about a person with someone they love dearly. That we know all know what it means to love dearly. And we all know what it means to feel bereft. And if I remember that, then I cannot let my mind fall into self-absorbed, woe is me, anything, but what can I love in this moment? Even can I love me in this moment, which is the opposite of woe is me. I say to myself, when I find myself struggling, uh, and I'm just going on about woe is me, this isn't right, he shouldn't have done, she shouldn't have said, it shouldn't be this way, why is this happening? And if I catch myself and I realize this is a woe is me, I think to myself, really, what? I'm in pain. That's what's true. And I say to myself, honestly, I do. I say, sweetheart, you're in pain. Take a breath. Take another breath. We'll figure out what to do. And everything changes. I honestly do say that's important. The sweetheart is important. You don't have to say sweetheart if you don't want to. You can say dear or your own name or whatever you want. But I say that because it's very important for me not to make myself wrong for having fallen into a snarl of anger or woe is me or recrimination or hatching a plot of revenge. I'm doing that because I'm hurt. Sweetheart, you're in pain. Take a breath. So I want to talk a little bit about mudita. We've talked a lot about compassion. You know, I'm not actually so sure that metta and compassion are at all separate, or any of these are separate. That they are all the heart warmly responding to the experience of the moment. And we have, as we've taught in several different ways, three kinds of experiences, those that are pleasant and those that are unpleasant, those that are neutral. And we've talked about friendliness, as being what the composed, equanimous mind generates when a situation is not challenging. And compassion is what the composed mind generates when it confronts suffering. And we've talked about, not so much, about mudita, appreciative, empathic joy. So I want to tell you an empathic joy story it's another Tamara story. I called Tamara, who lived in Florida, from the dressing room of Loman's department store in San Francisco last March 23rd. I, knew, I know that it's March 23rd because it's my daughter Elizabeth's birthday, and I took her to Loman's to let her pick out some clothing as a birthday present. And if you know Lomans at all, you know it has a communal dressing room where everyone stands in one big dressing room with mirrors all around. And you can get great bargains in Lomans. That's what Lomans is known for. And my friend Tamara was a very physically beautiful woman all of her life and loved to dress. She dressed remarkably, had a remarkable sense of style, which she learned from her mother. She's a very careful shopper, and she knew a good buy when she saw one. So I called up from the dressing room and um, I said, guess from where I'm calling you? And she said, I said, I'll give you a hint. It's uh, Liz's birthday and I'm in San Francisco with her. She said, ah, you're shopping with her. You, you're going to get her some clothing. I said, I am, but specifically where am I in San Francisco? And she said, he thought for me, she said, you're in Lomans. <laughs> I said, we are, we're in Lomans. She said, "What are you doing?" I said, "We're in the dressing room. Liz is trying on a Dana Buckman suit." She said, "Dana Buckman suit. Tell me, what color is it? What does it look like?" She said, "Hand the phone to Liz." So I hand the phone to Liz, and I'm standing there and they're having a conversation back and forth. Dana Buckman suit, Missoni sweater. How much does it cost? Back and forth, and I can tell what I what even the part that I don't hear of tomorrow speaking. I can tell what she's saying. Because Liz is saying you think so, it's so much money. No, no. but Clearly, Tamara is saying a Missoni sweater. That's nothing. Take that sweater. <laughs> so they're having a, a they're having this conversation, and it, and you know Liz is having a good time and looking at herself in the mirror and saying I've got this and that. Oh, don't miss that. And she and Tamara she, and we she got off the phone. She said Tamara said when we check out, I have to tell them it's my birthday and then show them my driver's license so see it really is my birthday because then you get 10% off this even big bargain so i called tomorrow the next day because what was significant about that loman's day is that it happened uh, not more not even a week three or four days i think after tomorrow i'd had, had the news from her doctors that the chemotherapy was not working anymore and that they were going to abandon all treatment and that she probably would live four more months at a maximum. And I was so moved that she could so completely get into enjoying that experience with Liz. So I called her the next day to thank her for doing that. And she said, no, no, I'm thanking you. She said, it was great. She said, it was wonderful for me to talk to her. I got so excited about it. It pulled me right out of my own stuff. She said, and what's more, I remembered shopping in Lomans with my mother. I remember taking Emily, her daughter, to Lomans and teaching her how to shop. She said, she said it was very good for me. She said, I am drafting on the happiness of other people these days. She said, I had a wonderful life and I loved it a lot and I want to remember that for as long as I live. That's when actually she said that first and then she said, So I'm drafting on the happiness of other people. I think it's a remarkable teaching. I just am so changed by what she has taught me in the last two years. I'll tell you another tomorrow teaching she said she she was she was remarkably able to walk through the three years of the treatments the thirty six infusions of chemo, and the eight months actually that she lived until she died absolutely unflinchingly you know' just like you're going to meet somebody on the corner of uh, 42nd Street and Broadway. She was going to meet the end of her life. Certainly not happy that it was happening, but she sent uh, presents to, um, she went through her closets and sent her best friends things that she really loved. And so each of us, I'm sure, I got a package beautifully wrapped because she was a great wrapper of packages just as she was a great wrapper of her own self beautifully wrapped jacket, I was sorry that I hadn't brought it to the retreat, I would have worn it tonight, with a note about where she wore that jacket and how much she enjoyed it. And she she wrote, she told me, she said, I am having so much fun sending these packages because I am imagining the faces of the people who are opening the packages and reading my letters to them. I think that's remarkable practice. But the truth is, she said, I'm dying, and I need to do something to keep myself clear about. I want to remember that I wish this weren't happening, but it is. Some days, once I talked to her, she said, I had a really bad day yesterday. It was really hard to settle my mind down. She said, uh, so I ironed all day. She said, ironing is very good for you. It soothes you, just back and forth. She said, it's just like meditating, back and forth and back and forth. She said, I also listened to Barbara Streisand, too, back and forth and back and forth. And really, what she was doing was using all of the tools that she knew from all of her 20, 30 years of practice to know that there's a way that you can soothe the mind down to where it recovers its wisdom and it knows this isn't what I wanted, but it's what I got. I see that I'm starting to run out of time. I wanted to talk a little bit about understanding uh, loving-kindness practice also as three, as the three middle parts of the eightfold path as wise effort wise mindfulness and wise concentration because if you if if you remember that the eightfold path is the buddha's eight step program for mind training you know that the first three steps are the way in which we behave in the world the last two steps are the kind of studies and learning that we do to augment our wisdom, and that the middle three steps are the internal mind uh, training practices of effort, mindfulness, and concentration. So I think about every time that we make the attempt in this practice of taking the attention from some story that it's doing and putting it on a good wish for somebody. That is a movement of wise effort, an effort the Buddha defined, wise effort, as the effort to cultivate in the mind salubrious states, wholesome states, and to keep them there. Notice when they're not there and cultivate them. Notice when they are there and augment them. Notice when the quality of the climate of the mind, he said, is unwholesome states revenge, greed, and put them out of the mind. Replace them, he said, with wholesome states. Keep them out of the mind. Every moment that any one of us makes a blessing, we are augmenting the wholesomeness of the mind. We cannot be simultaneously blessing and hatching revenge at the same time. It doesn't work. It's like driving your car and forward and reverse at the same time. It doesn't go. Every moment, every, you could think of that as you, as you walk around during the day, as you eat, as you sit here, as you take a shower, as you make blessings for people because and for yourself or for other people, these are blessings. May you thrive. That each time you do that, you augment the wholesome climate of your mind. It's Wise effort, each time that you notice that there's a preference in the mind, this person I don't like so much, this person I really like, which is why is mindfulness. It's a way of um, noticing who you've put out of your mind a little bit. You have to like everybody just the same amount. But if I notice that there's anybody that I've put kind of at the side, just to have a sense of including them in my circle. Just today, as you had the experience with uh, uh, a familiar stranger or a person that you didn't know, they became dear to you, I imagine, as you passed them during the day. Did they become a little bit dear to you? It certainly became more familiar to you. I remember when, when I first did that practice, I picked the person across the hall from me, and uh, this was at uh, a monastery on the East Coast. I picked a person, actually it wasn't so neutral, I didn't care for her so much. She came a little bit late to the retreat, she banged around, she smashed her door, she thumped up and down the hallway. She had an alarm clock that went off and made a loud noise. I couldn't figure why she had the alarm clock. They rang bells. <laughs> I picked her as my familiar stranger. She was a familiar stranger. She wasn't neutral, but I picked her as a familiar stranger. And And I did these blessings for her. And in very short order, I began to worry about her and feel concerned about why she wasn't settling down and why she was thumping so loud and when she didn't show up for breakfast after I'd heard her alarm clock go off I worried (laughs) about maybe something had happened to her and she was sick as soon as you adopt somebody into your heart you change them you change yourself as well from a person who doesn't like to a person who has a lot of people living in their heart wise concentration is the composed mind And each time that you steadily bring your attention to a a wishing of good wishes, to this moment with no resistance, with cordial intent, it settles it down. It steadies it. So it can go on and live the rest of its life. So the last tomorrow story I'll tell you is... uh, Next to the last tomorrow story, I'll tell you. <laughs> is that uh, as, as her uh, symptoms got worse and she was in worse discomfort, and as her death became closer, sometimes her mind would get upset and she'd be confused by the various kinds of pain medications she'd have to take. And she said, uh, she said I'm really glad that I have this meditation to fall back on. She said, sometimes my mind is so confused. She said, but so when my mind is confused, so I can go off by myself for a little bit and go sit in our meditation room. I can connect with the breath and know I'm alive and wish myself well. And then after a while, I can go back in the living room and Jim and I watched the Marlins game. I actually love the idea that what we do is we just put ourselves together and we go back and watch the Marlins game. Or we do whatever else it is that we're doing. And we do it until the very end. That could be the last story because we've run out of time really. Sometime just near the, near the end of her life, uh, I said, are you afraid? She said, not really. She said, the only thing I'm afraid of is that uh, uh, people might forget me. I said, not on my watch. I am going to tell you stories up and down all over the place because uh, you may have thought that I was your teacher because we started out that way, but you really have been mine. All of this practice, mindfulness and loving kindness, are really life-saving practices up to the very end of the life. Let's sit.